Well, welcome back to our series um, through the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're talking about our journey home. Part one was follow the leaders. Part two was follow directions. And today's admonition is to walk worthy, to walk worthy. All of these concepts are going to be important if we're going to journey well. Look first with me at chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, where the Apostle Paul uh, writes. Connor, you got me all emotional now. I'm, I need a hanky, but I don't want your hanky, okay? Don't be handing me a hanky, and I'm wondering if it's been used or not. All right? I'll be okay. Yeah, here we go. Okay, I'm good now. All right, 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring, by the way, that he's talking about preaching right here, just for the record. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Verses like these are the reason I've called this series The Journey Home, because we are on our way into His kingdom and His glory. It's a reference primarily to heaven, our eternal home. But notice now that this journey is pedestrian. We need to walk it out. As Paul says, to walk to the place where we are going in a worthy manner. There are no shortcuts. We can't take a jet or a car or a train. Shadow facts will not be coming to uh, give us a ride. Scotty will not be beaming us up. We need to walk this journey out step by step. Just out of curiosity, let's do a straw poll. How many of you know who Shadow Facts is? I knew they were over there. Got a few over here. You can Google it later. Thankfully, we have no internet service in here, so you can't Google it right now. What does it mean to walk with God? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, this is something we read about in the Bible. The Christian walk, uh, or as our text put it, uh, puts it, to walk in a way that is worthy. What is this walking imagery that was used so often in Scripture? Well, basically, we're talking about a way of life, a way of life. The Christian journey, among other things, is a way to live. This is about making choices that other people don't make. It's about where we go and don't go. It's about what we do and do not do. And it is especially about who we prove to be along the way. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of our God? To understand that, we'll fast forward to chapter 4, starting in verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul continues, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I'm going to take this passage one verse at a time. And we are going to see four different ways that we need to walk if we are to do so in a way that is worthy of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we're told to walk with excellence. Verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Remember from part one of the series that the Thessalonian church was the example church. As Paul put it, they were exemplary. All the churches in the region and even around the known world had heard about the excellence of this church. But here they are being challenged to go even further. Paul says, just as you received instruction as to how you should walk, meaning how you should live to please God, and just as you have actually been excelling in this, see that you excel even more. All right, so what's the deal? What is with this call to excellence? How much is too much to expect of a follower of Jesus or a church? Are we not imperfect people? And let's take a quick step back and understand that in addressing the brethren here, Paul is addressing the church. All of this has been about the church at Thessalonica. He's talking to them as an entity, a fellowship, a specific local church family. Should we not take it the same way as a church? Are we walking in excellence as a church? Are you part of this church or a church so that you could even take scriptures like this the way they are intended? Are you committed to this church family in such a way that I can address you as a church? Just as Paul addressed the church at Thessalonica. Some of you are. By the way, it's weird to say, I go to go church, isn't it? I go to go church. That's just weird. So don't say that. Say, I'm part of go church. I'm on the team at Go Church, or I'm with Go Church. Anything but I go to Go Church. Come on, folks. Church is not something you go to. It's people you go with. We can't even talk about excelling as a church until we understand that we are a church together. Paul addresses this church as a team. He says they're doing an excellent job. And he says they should strive to excel even more. Here in these words of Scripture, even the very hard to impress, Apostle Paul says this church made up of ordinary people is already excellent, yet apparently that doesn't mean they should settle. But rather they're challenged to strive for even more excellence. What does that mean for us? This teaching does not fit very well with popular psychology, does it? it, it, it this would be considered um, 
would not be considered an effective parenting technique or a good method for motivation and education these days. We are told to set goals that are easy to accomplish so that we can get a win uh, easily, to be encouraging no matter what, or that, that if someone fails, we should give them a trophy. I'm okay. You're okay. Hey, everything, everybody's okay. Everything's okay, right? But here God is saying of one of the be- to the one of the best churches ever, hey, great job, but you can do better. Now, let me tell you what this is really all about. This entire text is all about a process that theologians call sanctification. Sanctification does not exactly fit with I'm okay, you're okay philosophy at all. You might have noticed that sanctification is mentioned three times in these eight verses. So what exactly is sanctification? Sanctification is the process of being made holy. The process of being made holy. Okay, so what exactly is holiness? Well, holiness is excellence from God's point of view. It's exactly what it is. And by the way, excellence from God's point of view is perfection. Great, right? Let me read those again. Sanctification is the process of being made holy. Holiness is excellence from God's point of view, from God's point of view, how he sees things, sees things. Excellence from God's point of view is perfection. Oh, wait a minute, Pastor Mark. God never asked us to be perfect. Oh, really? Are you sure about that? Matthew 5, 48. Jesus said, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Somebody say, oh. Let me just give you a little hint. Anytime you're saying God never said, and if what you're saying makes God's expectations smaller, you are always going to be wrong. We need to stop settling because God isn't settling, and we need to stop making excuses because God doesn't make excuses. You know what the big problem with excuses is? Excuses prohibit life change. You may want to write that down. You can tweet that if you want. You don't even have to give me credit. Excuses prohibit life change. You'll never improve the quality of your life as long as you continue to justify your own bad choices. That's just a bonus point for your edification and enjoyment. Excuses prohibit life change. If you're making excuses, you're probably refusing to let God change you in ways that you need to be changed. Now, let's get back to understanding sanctification, which is the process of being made holy. To be holy is to be like God, to be godly, to be perfectly Christ-like. And we are commanded repeatedly in the New Testament that we should, in fact, be holy. To be holy is to be excellent from God's point of view. You've heard about salvation, which happens by grace through faith in Christ. But what about sanctification? What about the rest of the journey? What about after the U-turn? Remember from last week? And like in our logo, you keep going after the U-turn, right? That process or that journey is called sanctification. You see, we're, we're called not only to be saved, but to be sanctified. Not only to be forgiven, but to become more and more like Jesus. There are three big theological words every believer ought to know, and they are justification, sanctification, and glorification. 
I'm not throwing out these words to sound smart, but because we really do need to understand these words, or at least we need to understand the concepts behind these words. You see, when a person initially comes to Christ, they are immediately justified by God. Saved. Salvation happens. Justification. That They are declared righteous. They're reckoned as holy, considered as holy on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. God, the judge of the universe, has declared, He has decided to justify sinners by grace through their faith in Christ. A newly saved person is acquitted, forgiven, justified by simply placing his or her faith in what Jesus already did on the cross. But remember what I said last week, salvation is not intended to be the end of the journey. We don't just turn to Christ and stop. We turn to Christ and go. And so after justification, sanctification immediately begins. By the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, God starts to change us from the inside out. At that point, we're not only considered to be holy, but we are actually being made holy in our real daily lives. This journey toward holiness called sanctification is really what this sermon series is mostly about. Now, what about the third word, glorification? Guess when glorification happens? It happens when Jesus returns, when Christ comes back. The Bible says he, we will be transformed into His likeness, suddenly perfected in every way and made to be completely holy just like Christ, not only in our spirits but in our bodies. Indeed, in a moment we'll be glorified by God, made fit for our heavenly existence. Now watch this. Justification and glorification are things God does to us, really without any effort on our part. God justifies us. God glorifies us. There's nothing we can do to add to what God does in justification and glorification. But what about sanctification? Listen to me carefully. I will tell you, I will take this stand on the basis of Scripture. Sanctification requires your effort. That might make a few of you like... Mm -hmm. Sanctification requires effort on your part. Now, God does the actual life-changing work, but listen... He absolutely waits for your participation. He waits for your steps. He waits for your walk. Sanctification is a joint effort between you and God. We're told repeatedly in 2 Peter, for instance, to make every effort at this process called sanctification. And 1 Peter also makes it clear, for instance, from verse 14, chapter 1 in Peter's first letter, the Word of God says this, So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the Scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. In that same vein, our text today tells us to walk out our faith in a way that is worthy of the one who calls us. Indeed, that even if we're already doing so, as the Thessalonians were, then we should go further still and do so with even more excellence. And so there's clearly a part of sanctification that requires our effort. God does not zap us with this. He does not force us down the road to become more like Christ. He provides the power. He does the transforming work in our hearts, but He also often waits for us to take steps. Here's the point. If you want to get somewhere on this journey, you're going to have to start walking. 
If you want to get somewhere on this journey, you're going to have to start walking. Sanctification is made up of daily choices, daily disciplines. Are you choosing to walk with God in an excellent way? One last thought under this point. Do you, do you notice there that our text says something about pleasing God? Pleasing God. Paul says, remember what we taught you about how you should walk and please God. Some people today are saying that you can't do anything to please God. That's what they're saying. That, that, that you'll never be able to um, somehow do anything that God would notice, that God would be pleased by. I hear that a lot. There we go. They're saying that because you're so depraved and, and you're so unimportant to God, you know, you're just so small, you're a grasshopper. Uh, or just that there's, there's nothing else to do after salvation. It's all already done. There's nothing else to walk out that you could never do anything to impress or otherwise please God. And so basically, if you take that line of thinking to its logical conclusion, it means nothing we do really matters. It's, it's fatalism. Those who think that way can take it up with the Apostle Paul, I guess, because clearly he thought it was possible to live in such a way that our lives would actually be pleasing to God, which, of course, also means it's possible to live in a way that displeases God. Listen, the Lord is not somehow blind to the good and bad of your life after you're saved. He's the God who sees. It's one of his titles in Scripture. Your choices matter to Him. Walking in excellence means walking in a way that pleases God. Secondly, our text challenges us to walk in purity. To walk in purity. This admonition comes out of verses 2 and 3. So follow along here. Paul says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Folks, in my opinion, there are more warnings and there's, a, there's stronger language reserved for sexual immorality along with idolatry than any other specific area of sin by far. We talked about idolatry last week. Sexual immorality is right there with it and probably even more so in the New Testament. It's everywhere. According to Scripture, God has little patience and frankly no tolerance for sexual immorality. Thankfully, sexual immorality is no longer a problem today. Oh. What, you, you still think it's a problem? But not for anyone in this room, right? Mm -hmm. No, friends, let's just get this out on the table. I would say that most every person here today either participates in or fights hard to avoid sexual immorality on a daily basis. Some are still fighting. Some quit fighting a while back. Others don't even realize they should be fighting. But hear this. If you practice sexual immorality, you will get burned. When I say you'll get burned, I mean you'll get burned badly enough that you'll deeply regret your sin at some point. Someday you'll know that it was not worth it. And I'm talking about consequences in this life. You'll reap what you sow. I could read warning after warning. I have many of them memorized for my own battles. Warning after warning from verse after verse of Scripture. I could explain how sexual immorality messes everything up in your marriage or future marriage. 
how it robs you of God's awesome blessings in your life, in your life. Sexual immorality can ruin your life like nothing else. Your sin will eventually find you out. You will get caught. Your testimony will be severely damaged. You will pay a price. You will be sorry. Now, it would be tempting for me to stop right there, just kind of let that generally cover it and let everybody breathe. But I can't because it's too easy for many of you to think I'm talking to someone else. I need to go a little bit further with this. So, generally speaking, what is considered to be sexually immoral according to Scripture, the Bible, where we find out what God thinks about things. Well, the Bible clearly and repeatedly, with no possible way around it, prohibits these things. Adultery, homosexual acts, premarital sex, bestiality, incest, and lust. And we can just put a parenthesis by lust, pornography. These forms of sexual immorality are immoral or sinful according to God. And I'm not going to try to define all of those things today because what this really boils down to is one very simple fact. Sex is reserved for marriage between one man and one woman. I mean, if you care about the Bible and what God has said in it. Sex is reserved for marriage between one man and one woman. Sex was designed by God in order to bless the marriage of a husband and wife. Sex is holy and sacred to God. And so to use it outside of his intentions is to profane and to pervert one of his special and greatest gifts. Now, let's be honest. Some of you are always debating in your mind whether or not certain specific activities are sexually immoral or not. Let me put this subtly yet clearly. If something is sexual for you and it does not involve your spouse, then it is immoral. If something is sexual for you and it does not involve your spouse, then it is immoral. Time to stop thinking about other people's sin. Do a heart check. You will not experience the blessings of purity in your life unless every type of sexual activity not involving your spouse is gone. Some of you aren't married. (laughs) So that means waiting for all of it. Guess what? You're not the only person in the world who's ever abstained. You're not the only person in the world who didn't just give in to your base desires. Jesus made it to 33. Maybe you've made it further than that, but you know, he also was crucified after that. You don't want that. So it's a fight. It's not easy. And there's grace when we fail, but stop believing the lie that you have no control. I think most of you know what I'm trying to say. Don't shoot the messenger. It isn't my fault that most people have strayed so far from the truth that the truth now sounds so extreme. But I'm telling there's no room for a little poison in purity. If you want the blessings of purity, you have to be pure. What's the blessing of purity? Well, there's a whole list of things, but, but I'll just point out one and remind you that Jesus said the pure in heart will see God. The pure in heart will see God. Maybe there's a reason you're not really seeing God in your life. 
the way that you could. Some of you know you'll need help. Your first and best step might be to admit that. I thought about recommending some books, but what you really need is accountability. So if you need help, I encourage you to contact our men's leader or our women's ministry leader. Let them help you. Email addresses are in the program. The Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea. When, when you read sexual immorality in your Bible, uh, it's the word pornea in the original Greek. That word simply means any sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage between a man and a wife. That's exactly what it means. Now, I don't have time to address all the different areas. So today, I, I'm going to pick on a particular one, and that's going to be the area of lust. Jesus said to desire or to lust after a person other than your spouse is like committing adultery with him or her in your heart. He said if your eye causes you to stumble in this way, it'd be better for you to cut off your uh, or your hand than it's better to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand. I mean, he's using hyperbole, extreme language uh, to make a point, but that's what Jesus said. That's how serious this is. This Greek word pornea likely reminds you of another word, pornography. Now, if Jesus said any lust is like committing adultery, just, just to look with desire, that it's com like committing adultery, how immoral is lust in the pornographic extreme? Look back at our text, verse 3. It is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. Yes, it's going to be a fight in today's world. Make no mistake. It's a daily battle to not look and not click. But I'm here to tell you that you can win this battle. Don't believe the lie that you can't. That's how Satan wins. You can overcome. You are an overcomer in Christ. So you're going to be just like most of the world. Maybe I even say all the world. Or are you going to follow Jesus? You'll need to change the channel. You may need to put filters on your computer and your phone. You'll need others to hold you accountable. Lust is a sin against your spouse or future spouse and against God. Your marriage will never be great till you get free of these things. Consider yourself duly warned. And again, lust is only one of the ways we might find ourselves walking unworthily in the area of sexual immorality. You know what else is sexual, uh, sexually immoral that you might not quickly think of? Habitually denying each other if you're married. Oh, I like the other one better. To fail to meet your spouse's need in this area is also sexual immorality. Read 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5, if you want a straightforward biblical command in this regard, trust me, it's in there. The Bible tells us to fulfill each other's needs in this area. This is one of the primary purposes for marriage. What about intentionally being seductive? Oh, did he say that? Did he just go there? Outside your home to be seductive. Is there any of that going on? I, I haven't seen any since yesterday. <laughs> Trying to catch someone's eye to potentially cause them to desire you. That's just as much sexual immorality as lust itself. I won't go far with this, but 1 Timothy 2.9 calls us to modesty, and it is addressed to women. For a reason, there are at least generally differences between how men and women are wired. If you can't see that, I feel like you're being unreasonable. So listen, don't throw out a stumbling block for your brothers, ladies. 
I can't tell you where the line is. I cannot tell you where the line is, and I would never try. But please at least give it some thought when you buy clothes. At the very least, you can make sure your motives are pure. All right. Let's take a deep breath. And let's remember the big picture for a second. We're studying a letter to a church. Remember that. This is a group of people trying to learn how to obey the commands of Christ just like us. They're learning how to walk worthy of the one who called them Jesus. First, we're to walk with excellence. Second, we're to walk in purity. And third, we are to walk with honor. From verses 4 and 5, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. What does it mean to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor? Well, by the word vessel, Paul means your physical body. And so this is basically all about self-control. This is about disciplining. By the way, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit, self-control. It's about disciplining your body instead of just doing whatever your body wants to do. And lustful passion like people who do not know God. And that's kind of the whole key here. There is honor in living like people who know God. Instead of just living however you want, like the rest of the world, there's just an honor in consistently living as God would have us live. Sometimes even unbelievers recognize this. Sometimes they make fun. But other times, maybe they give a little honor to a person who's truly living out their faith. This honorable way of life can actually be appealing to unbelievers sometimes, while they will always be repelled when they smell a hypocrite from a mile away, you know? We could talk about several things from these verses, but the reference to our vessel and our body made me think about physical fitness. There's no way I'm possessing my vessel in honor if I just eat whatever I want and never exercise. I'm not possessing my body with honor. If I don't get serious about dealing with any destructive habits and addictions, daily cheeseburgers and vats of soda are not honoring to your body. Obviously, neither are cigarettes or excessive amounts of many other things. And I'm not trying to pick on anything or anyone, but if you don't take care of your body, you're not walking worthy of the one who's called you and saved you. I don't want to slam America because I love my country, but we are known around the world as a people of excess. And let's face it, we're really over the top on a lot of things. Have you seen the size of the soft drinks? At fast food place. I mean, you get a small, it's like what used to be a large, right? If some of us are old enough to remember that. And the large is a bucket. <laughs> Two hands are needed. There's your sign. You know, I mean, that's not the only thing we get in buckets now. Do you really need a bucket of popcorn with melted butter laid down in layers throughout? I know, I know. It's really stepping on toes now. Okay, I can handle the sexual morality thing, but now we're talking about popcorn. Come on. You know, I mean, did you need, I mean, Jack in the Box, are you kidding? They're just like notorious. Well, and Hardy sometimes too. It's like, okay, you know, I mean, let's do a burger patty, then maybe like a chicken breast, another burger patty, bacon, three kinds of cheese, and... Maybe or maybe not a bun. I mean, you know, it's just excessive. 
How many beers can a man drink during a round of golf? I used to clean out golf carts for a while, and I would see how many cans. There's only two guys in there. I'm going, man, I could like, I could start a recycling factory just from these cans, from one round of golf. I mean, forget the alcohol issue for a second. I'm just talking about the amount of actually bad-for-you liquid that you can take in before your stomach simply explodes. I mean, personally, for me, it's better to just not drink alcohol at all. But I just stand amazed sometimes at the sheer volume of beer that some people drink. You wouldn't drink a six-pack of water. When did people become so excessive? Why do we destroy our own bodies? Sometimes Christians forget that God cares about our physical fitness as well as our spiritual fitness. It's, it, it's like a new form of dualism where the body just isn't that important, but our Scripture today tells us that God expects us to possess our bodies in sanctification and honor. What is our body to God? It's a temple. The Bible says our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19. What have you been doing to God's house? Does he like what you've done with the place? How well are you taking care of God's temple? I know I'm not, I'm not a perfect example on this, but I keep working on it. Sometimes I let my body go for a few months, usually around Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> but I always try to get back to work on it again before it gets too far gone, too far out of control. I don't know about you, but I can always use these reminders. I'm not supposed to just let myself go. To live with lustful passion, you know, like drinking a venti mocha latte every day. That's about 500 calories, by the way. Looked it up. That's not good. Doing too much stuff like that means I'm not possessing my vessel with honor. And that really means I'm not walking worthy. Not walking worthy. If I drink three monster, really, I'm sorry, but any of those things are so bad for you. It's unbelievable. Not good for you. The, uh, what do you call them? Energy drinks, you know? I mean, I wasn't going to single anything out, but man, not good. Let me shoot off on a tangent for a moment. I'm not going to say much about it because the topic warrants an entire sermon or maybe even a series of sermons, but um, I want you to know that I'm a believer in regular fasting um, as a spiritual discipline. The Bible teaches fasting throughout the Old and the New Testaments. When men and women of God fasted from food for a time in order to seek Him to pray, amazing stuff happened over and over and over. And I've experienced that in my own life, very much so. And that applies today because fasting sort of counteracts our temptation toward the excesses of the world we live in. If those who do, know, do not know God act in lustful passion, for instance, if they consume every food item that they want, then how should people who know God behave toward food? I think one of the biblical ways we can act differently and one of the ways we can possess our vessels with honor is to fast, as the Bible says we should. To fast regularly as a part of our walk, you know, along with Bible study and prayer and those things that we hear about. Why do we not hear about fasting? I'll tell you why. We have overreacted to Jesus' teaching about how we should kind of, you know, we, he was trying to tell these Pharisees were doing it in such a way that, you know, their motives weren't good. Their heart wasn't right. They weren't getting anything out of it because they were just doing it to impress people. We've kind of overreacted to that in such a way that now we never talk about it. Pastors don't even want to talk about it. We don't need to overreact. It's okay. You can talk about it. Can I just free you up a little bit? As long as your heart's right and you're not just doing it 
it's, it doesn't always have to be an absolute secret, you know, only for the really, it's like some kind of secret little spiritual club thing that we're the fast, we, we don't talk about it, but we actually, that really should be much more part of our conversation about how we walk with the Lord. It should be right there with Bible study and prayer. Before we move on, notice the word possessing in this verse. We are, we are to possess our vessels, our bodies with sanctification and honor. What's another word for possession? To possess something is to own it. Possession is ownership. So the question is, do you take ownership of your vessel? You know, friend, if you don't take ownership of, of your own body, I'm not sure you own anything. I mean, there's, there's no one else to blame when it comes to how we handle our own bodies. Surely each of us can take responsibility for our own physical self. No one else can do this for us. It's part of walking away that's worthy of the one who has called us. Lastly, as a part of walking worthy, um, number four, walk harmlessly. Verse six, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Basically, don't hurt people. Let me say that again. Don't hurt people. Don't transgress or defraud other people. And if you do, look out, because the eyes of God are watching. And it says that He takes vengeance out on those for those people that you hurt. That's what it says. And don't miss that this verse really points back to everything we've already studied today. Look at it. Paul says the Lord is the avenger in all these things. In all these things, he's basically saying that if you don't work this stuff out, if you don't walk with excellence and in purity and with honor, that means that some actual person is going to get hurt. And then you better watch out because God is going to take it out on you. Oh, God would never take it out on me. He's not like that. Oh, really? Listen, we need to be careful with this God would never stuff. What does this verse say? God is not blind. When you don't walk with excellence, don't walk in purity. Don't walk with honor. Other people get hurt one way or another. And verse 6 says, God will avenge those hurts. I don't like that. I don't like that. But that's what it says. As I'm wrapping up, I need to return briefly to the topic of sexual immorality because, honestly, even though I've pointed out some other things, sexual immorality is really what this whole passage is about. Mostly. And sexual immorality hurts people. It hurts your spouse or your future spouse. It hurts you, yourself. It hurts any other person involved, even if that person's only a picture on a page. It does harm because it keeps those places and things in business. Sexual immorality can destroy entire societies. I think that's what happened with Rome more than anything else. The moral fabric of a culture decays and foundational structures like the family are destroyed because of sexual immorality. It's so very harmful. People always wind up lying. We don't know who we can trust. People accuse others rather than facing their own problem. Men blame their wives for their own perversion. Wives sometimes are too judgmental on husbands without any understanding or help offered. Sexual immorality breeds accusation and gossip and slander more than any other single thing. It's possibly the most harmful sin that there is. How many murders happen because of sexual immorality? How many suicides? 
Paul says, in this matter, do not transgress your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't hurt them. Don't defraud them. Don't mess up their marriage or future marriage. Learn to walk harmlessly in this matter and in all these things. So here's the bottom line. If you walk with excellence and purity and honor, you will be walking harmlessly. If you walk with excellence and purity and honor, you'll be walking harmlessly. Remember Jesus said, loving God and your neighbor sums up the whole Bible. When you will walk in a way that's worthy of the one who called you, you won't be hurting other people anymore. When you stop sinning, you stop harming. Because make no mistake, every sin you ever commit harms someone. Never just yourself. Never. Your sin, private or public, always hurts other people and more than you ever know. If you want to stop harming others, learn to walk with excellence and purity and with honor. To walk harmlessly, walk worthy. I know that we live under God's grace and forgiveness. But that should motivate us, not excuse us. As I conclude, maybe some of you thought this message was a little bit harsh, a little bit um, blunt. Paul must have wondered if his audience would think the same thing because he closed this section off with these words, verse 7 and 8. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I have a feeling that many people need to repent today, particularly of sexual immorality. Don't feel like the Lone Ranger. You need to repent. You need to turn to God and away from sin. That's the truth of it. Some may need to repent because you aren't in control of your own body. You're not possessing your vessel with honor. Others may feel convicted because you simply haven't been committed to, to walking with excellence with Christ in a worthy way. Whatever the case, you need to turn away from sin and turn to God for help in overcoming that sin. So would you just bow with me? Really thinking of believers today, those who know Jesus, those who want to walk with Him. And if that's you, would you just have you done any soul searching? Is there anything that God has brought to mind? Just take a moment. And, and so that you can have the chance to respond. Um, in, in this building, there's just, there's, there's not a way for us to. If we were in another building, I would probably have people come and pray at the front, but this just doesn't work here. So I'm going to do something a little different and, and ask uh, if, if there's something, and it, it may be any of these areas, so it may be any of these areas, but there's something, and you need to repent of something. And so I'm not even going to look up. We're all going to be in prayer, but if, if that's you and you know that you just need to do something today to just sort of kind of more than just quiet that you can forget about it. Just, just raise your hand and, and, and just before God, not before me, I'm not looking. Just raise your hand to God and say, I, I, need, I need to repent today in your heart. Just tell Him I, I turn today and, and I'm, I'm raising my hand as a way of just sort of committing to the Lord that with His help, I'm, I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn from this thing. Just tell Him. I just, I just know, I have a feeling there's hands raised all over this room and, and I, there certainly should be. My, my hand is raised. 
I need help. God, I need help. Help me, Lord. Feel, sometimes it feels like I, I win 99 out of 100 battles, but that one, that one time, that one moment, Lord, it really does mess everything up. Lord, today I, I, I commit to You at another level. God, help me. It matters. It matters when we sin. It matters when we're not pure. God, we lay it on the cross. Lord, ultimately we know that's our only hope. Perfection really comes in glorification. That's still to come. But Lord, in the process, on the journey, make us holy. On, on days like this, let us turn. Give us a fresh start. Give us the power to overcome. We commit it to You. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.